Hello, and welcome to Blood, Fear, and Beer, the podcast where we drink beer and talk about horror movies. I'm Alicia. I'm Greg. How are you, Greg? I'm doing fine and dandy. Fine and dandy? That's good to hear. So that beer you're drinking looks awfully familiar. What is that you have in your glass there? It's another delicious IPA. (laughs) (laughs) Run out of new beers? (laughs) Yeah, I just wasn't feeling I got the Arrogant Bastard. And that one's a little more rich and dark than I'm in the mood for right now for a midweek beer. And then I have like another porter that's on the line. But again, I just wasn't feeling like something really dark right now. It's been it's so hot. hot. Yeah. I just wanted something nice and familiar. My, my comfort food. I gotcha. What do you got? I have a brand new porter from the Great Divide Brewing Company. So I had one from them a couple weeks ago. It was the uh, Yeti Imperial Stout and I loved that one. It had a very strong coffee flavor. So this one, it's the same brewing company. It's their coffee porter. And apparently it's a limited release. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure how long it's going to be around. But this one is a 6.5%. So quite a bit more modest than the Imperial Stout. That one was like a 95 or 10. Yeah, I remember like that being like 9 something. It was pretty pretty strong. This is just a regular little 12-ounce can too. So how is it? I like that. Yeah. It's almost like they put a light roast coffee into a porter. Hmm. It's not as dark as or as heavy as some of the other porters and stouts that I've had. Can I try it? Yeah. That's light-ish. It kind of does have a little bit of a, almost like a carbonated mm-hmm. aftertaste. Yeah. And then there's like a little bit of the sweetness that I remember from sodas. Yeah. It's very drinkable. So we are going into, I literally lost count of how many weeks of quarantine it's been. But <laughs> we've been trying to find ways to uh, keep ourselves sane and entertained. And I know one of the ways we've been doing that has been cooking. It's just been nice. It's been so nice. And we were kind of joking about it before we started recording. Because we were watching, um, if anyone's a fan of the Great British Baking Show, which I'm sure everybody is, right? I don't know. Why if you're not, be. you will be if you watch it. But... One of the contestants who had been on one of the earlier seasons has her own show now on Netflix where she shows you like these time-saving recipes. And I feel like as we were watching this before we started recording, I was like, I think we're almost ready to level up. We're really close. I feel like we're right on the precipice. Yeah. I think we leveled up at the start of quarantine the way we've been kind of meal prepping and planning things out and like making sure that we use all of our leftovers. And I feel like we're just on the edge of leveling up into some insane shit. Yeah. I think we just need that food processor and that immersion blender. Yeah. And we will be plus one. And we need to make our own pasta sauce. With the immersion blender. With the immersion blender. Yeah. I'm super excited. I'm so excited for that. <laughs> it's been giving me, you know, things to look forward to, like trying new recipes or perfecting recipes that we already use a lot. It's been fun. And just food has been super comforting. I mean, it always is, but yeah, especially after you know the both the the weirdness and somewhat of the monotony of the the day to day of then you know your normal routine. It's nice to have that comfort food, if you will, and that thing to look forward to and to kind of bring your day back into some amount of normalcy. Yeah. Because, you know, dinner's always been the time that we've gotten to connect and reevaluate the day and reconnect with each other and still having that and still treating it as a normal part of the day and having that be the normal part of the day has been very nice. It has been. It's something I definitely look forward to every day. Even breakfast. Like, before all this started, you know, I've always eaten breakfast, but it's been... 
I know it's kind of hard to get up during a weekday and decide that you're going to cook breakfast. So I've really been enjoying having pancakes on a Thursday or making a poached egg for the first time in my life just because I had the time and it looked fun. Yeah. And it's, it's been, been awesome. awesome for me because I've never had this much breakfast in my whole life. <laughs> we are healthy as fuck. <laughs> it also feels for me with cooking just like a chance to be creative without having to overthink it too much. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's been really nice. So we've definitely been doing a lot of that. And I feel like I'm going to be like cracked out on that show because we're only a couple recipes in and my mind has already been blown by all of them. I still want to figure out our Instapot because I try to make that one beef stew and that turned out, in my opinion, awful. I thought it was bomb. I hated it. And then I know everyone I talk to just talks about how much they love it. And I can't really find that many good recipes that aren't just beef stew or some version of beef stew. <laughs> and I'm like, that's great, but I already know how to make beef stew, and it turns out fucking great as it is, so why do I need this thing for? I wonder if we could take our regular beef stew recipe and just make it in the Instant Pot. Sure, but again, I want though? something besides beef stew. <laughs> and <laughs> but do you really need anything besides beef stew? I'm not sure, but do I have an Instant Pot, and so now I need to figure out what else there is I can make with it that's any good. There is, and always has been, and only ever will be, beef stew. That's just how it is. Maybe. We'll have to branch out and look for more recipes. I want to make pho in the Instant Pot. I found a recipe that looks really good. Yeah, I just, I can't find anything that seems all that appetizing to me that makes me want to use it so far. Maybe that'll come to us when we level up. Maybe. Which will be soon. We're almost there. A couple more experience yeah. points. And we that's about like making rice in there, but then like, I'd rather just spend the 20 minutes not have to do all the dishes. <laughs> <laughs> like, I could read a fucking book. It's great. We'll get there. All right, so this week we covered a classic haunted house movie, and you know that I love a good haunting. You do. I really do. I love a good ghost story, and this one is on a lot of people's top haunted house movie lists, and this was my first time seeing it. I know it was your first time seeing it, and I had just a couple complaints about it that I'll get into later, but for the most part, I thought it was a pretty solid ghost story, and there were a lot of things that I really liked about it. Yeah. And this movie was also, you could tell just watching it and the time that it came out that it was probably a really influential movie and that a lot of other ghost stories probably took elements from this one. Definitely. So just to kind of give a nod to that and acknowledge that, I wrote down a pretty extensive list of other haunted house movies that I like and I was wondering if they're, like what are some of your favorite haunted house movies? Well, as you know, I didn't really have a lot of time to make a list or anything, but I enjoyed in no particular order. I'm just going to say it real quick. I feel like I say every episode, of course, is The Shining. Just get that off the list. That's not a haunted house movie. Well, this one wasn't a haunted house movie then either. It was a fucking mansion. I mean, how big? All right. Well, I guess, I mean, they live there, so. Anyways. All right. The Shining. Just that. I just feel like (laughs) that needed to be said real quick. Okay. I also really liked Beetlejuice. That is a great, great Haunted House movie. That Probably is, my favorite. I didn't even think of that. That's brilliant. Yes. And then I liked... I almost spit out my beer. <laughs> I don't know why I almost spit out I my know, beer when you said that. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> like I got to the secret level or something like that. <laughs> I was shocked. <laughs> I liked uh, that Skeleton Key movie. I thought that was cool when I first saw it. Oh, yeah. That was, that was fun. That was fun. I like that, I don't that know if it would hold up, but the first time I watched it was good. I feel like it might a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Conjuring. That was a good haunted movie. 
I loved that one. Yeah. That looked pretty good. I was I was yeah. impressed with that one. I, was... I I went in expecting it to not only not be great, but to be bad. Same. And I was just floored by how good it was. Yeah, it was a decent movie. I still Yeah, I had know, a blast. Rewatchability too. Yeah. Sinister. Oh yeah. Great. What are some that you have? So I have quite a few. And uh almost any list I have is gonna have poltergeist on it, of course. Because it's it's one of my favorites ever, but just a fantastic haunted house movie. It's a blast, but every single time I watch that one, I have such a good time, and I feel like they really ramp it up to 11 with the haunting in that one, and it's really fun to watch. Can I just give um, a shout-out? It's not a movie, but I really like that, uh, what was it, House on Haunted Hill series? Oh, I do have that on my list. The uh, Haunting of Hill House. Haunting of Hill House. Oh my a, gosh. That was a good series. It's so hard to find a good horror series, especially one that's good all the way through, and that was just fantastic. It was, yeah. Season two is coming out this year. I think in the fall, and it's, uh, I think it's called The Haunting of Bly Manor, and it's based on the book by Henry James, The Turn of the Screw, which I've actually never read. I somehow missed out on reading that, but I'm it's like a, sure I've heard it. it's a classic, like, gothic Victorian haunted house yeah. story, but it's very famous. It's been pretty much adapted to death by movies and shows and other books and other stories, and so here we go. Same with, same with the, haunting, <laughs> or the Haunting of Hill House. It's yeah. been done over and over because it's a great story. Mm. But yeah, absolutely. I had to give that one a shout out too. I also had The Conjuring on my list because, again, that one was... I feel like it managed to pull from so many classic horror movies without feeling too derivative or feeling like it was ripping them off. And I feel like that's not easy to do. That's a good point. Yeah, it was really well done, really fun. And I really liked that one. I also had, I know you didn't like this one very much, but I think you may have seen it too late. I absolutely love it. But The Others with Nicole Kidman, I think is a great haunted house story. And at the time that came out, I think it was close to the same time as The Sixth Sense. So you had these two movies that had like a really shocking twist that nobody saw coming at the time. And the first time I saw that one, it freaked me out and the twist blew my mind. And then when I went back and watched it again, it was even better because you start to notice everything and you see the hints early on. And I love Nicole Kidman in everything. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that because um, when we were watching The Changeling, one of the things, one of my favorite podcasts, as you know, is Stuff You Should Know. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the co-hosts on that is uh, Josh Clark. And he said before that Changeling is one of his favorite horror movies, or at least ghost horror movies. Yeah. And I was recently listening to one of their newer episodes and i'm pretty sure it was the super nap um spiritualism spiritualism episode and but it may not have been and he mentions another ghost story movie that he loved and i thought for sure he was gonna say changeling again but he actually mentioned the others and how good that was and uh actually i like he said i just maybe it was too late in the game or something yeah. like that but i didn't really enjoy it all that much I it okay. really as far as ghost stories go it really is in my opinion, just a great movie. And especially when, you know, everybody compares it to The Sixth Sense because of the times that they came out almost back to back. That's that's a big shadow to stand in. And I feel like it still to this day holds up so well. And this director also did such a good job creating this mood and atmosphere and just kind of underlying melancholy and dread the entire movie. Mm. I was really impressed with it. But I feel like you, you really have to be in the mood to watch a good ghost story because they can be, I don't want to say boring, but boring. 
Yeah, I think that's what it was for me. Maybe yeah. I just wasn't in the mood, but I was kind of on board with it. And yeah. I also I... felt that the movie was just predictable in a lot of ways. Like, I, yeah. I didn't feel like anything that took place was exciting to me. Yeah, well, I, again, especially now in 2020 with all the crazy things that have come out, I feel like if you're just seeing it for the first time, it would definitely be kind of predictable and not super exciting. But when it came out, like 1999 or 2000, it was... Everybody was talking about it. I remember being in, like, fifth grade or something. Everybody was talking about it. All that fifth grade class. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) My fifth grade class was hyped about the others. (laughs) You would not believe the conversations at the water cooler when I got there. Yeah, it really uh, caused some waves. But, yeah, I feel like to, to watch a movie like that, it's almost... It's best on... You know, maybe if you're not feeling very well or if it's like a rainy night and it's dark, you don't have a lot going on. Like you just want a dreary, slow, moody ghost story. That's the right time. I love it. And just moving on, um, another one I absolutely thought was incredible was The Orphanage. Oh, that is a good one. That was amazing. I really want to watch that again soon. Yeah, that was was good. That That fun was dark. I was was a little traumatized after that one. That was was dark. We watched it once and then never again, <laughs> but I, I might be ready soon. Yeah. It was great. Yeah. So that's a good haunted house movie. I also threw Paranormal Activity in there just because it's... It's a thing. It's a thing. I personally, and I hope I don't get butchered for saying this, I love the first three Paranormal Activity movies. So I've always seen the first one and I've seen part of the second one and I was bored and I've never seen any of the third one. Personally, I liked three better than two. Okay. I think three was better than two. Two was good, but it was a little bit more um, like reliant on jump scares. But one, I was really impressed with when it came out. And all three of them are found footage? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm not. You got to do those right. Yeah. And you have to be at the right time. You know, I'm not a big fan of those. I love found footage for primarily one reason, and it's not because they're great movies, but it's because if I am just looking to be scared, that'll do it. There's something about found footage movies that put me on edge so fast. I guess because it's, you know, it's a handheld camera. You have no control over the perspective. It, it's a little bit more immersive. That shit freaks me out really fast. Yeah. What was that? What was that movie we watched where I screamed bloody murder and like your roommates oh, were laughing? Oh, Banshee something. The Banshee chapter. Banshee chapter. Yeah. <laughs> like five minutes into so the hard. movie. <laughs> that was, <laughs> I, don't, I remember that being really weird. But... It was weird. It was kind of fun. They had like Hunter S. Thompson I, and they had alien stuff going on. I enjoyed and acid it. It was and a, drugs and all kinds of weird shit. It was a trip. I yeah. enjoyed that. But yeah, but yeah, I thought Paranormal Activity was a solid movie with some really good scares and it did some really amazing things with the sound design. That Paranormal? made the, Yeah. I, I felt the first one was you gotta give your props it's to that. It's great, yeah. Even if you don't like found footage, what they were able to do with such a low budget and make it what it was and turned out to be you know that was impressive yeah i also have to appreciate a haunted house movie that kind of has a modern twist because you know so many of these classic ghost stories are in these big mansions and there's all these like classic elements i I actually have a checklist i'm going to go through that the changeling had that constitute like a perfect gothic ghost story but these movies with the more modern twist i think do a really good job of at least for me making me a little bit uneasy when i go to bed at night yeah yeah, I remember uh, 
<laughs> my sister first of all i think she still like has issues about having her leg uncovered on her like her sheet or something like oh that oh my god so do i yeah <laughs> <laughs> so do i i'm a grown-ass adult <laughs> Nobody likes to have their leg uncovered at night, whether they've seen I do, that or that's not. how I temperature oh, control. I can't do it. I gotta have a blanket, even if I'm sweating to the point of being near death. I have to have a blanket on me. No, I gotta regulate And the door has to be closed. Like, they were sleeping with that door open, and you could see down the dark hallway every night. I'm like, you guys are insane in that movie. That's insane. Okay, so the next one I had was Stir of Echoes, which we've already covered we loved it if you want to hear our thoughts on that check out our very first episode i'm just gonna leave that there but that's a great haunted house movie and we saw this one recently and it's kind of a horror comedy and i really enjoyed it it was a housebound i remember that the new zealand one with the girl who's on house oh yeah yeah yeah. that was hilarious i got a kick out of that it was a little bit too long yeah but i really had a good time with that and the last one i have is also so near and dear to my heart and an amazing movie and it really gets under your skin is the babadook oh of course so good yeah that movie just absolutely blew me away and the the first time i watched it it was broad daylight i was home by myself and it definitely crept up on me later absolutely that's a great one love 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 that movie that's a very good one yeah if you haven't seen it go see it yeah it's another one of those like first time directors that just unbelievably knocks it out of the park right seriously like that is just that blows my mind like that keeps happening especially recently these first time directors just knocking it out of the park like we said before you know normally horror doesn't do very well on the rating levels you know which is not a very well respected genre and a lot of people like it yeah and again this is one of those movies that not only being a first time director and a horror movie like people loved it Critics and audiences alike were blown away by how good the movie was. It's one of the highest for... rated horror movies that I've seen. Yeah. Yeah. Really impressive. Understandable. From the too. critics and the audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well deserved. Like, it's absolutely amazing. Definitely not up his own ass, that's for sure. No. And I've seen it, I think, three times now. And it every time I watch it, I am sweating by the end. And I'm distressed. It's very, dis- <laughs> you know, I was going to say it's, you know, yeah. distressing. I'm word. like physically distressed by the end of that movie. Yeah, your butt is clenched, your asshole feels bruised by the end <laughs> of it. It's, a... it's intense. It, it's pretty relentless, mm-hmm. but that's that's a great haunting. Okay, are you ready to talk about The Changeling? I'm ready. Alright, so this movie came out in 1980. So the same year as The Shining. Nice. That's some pretty uh, hefty competition. Yeah. But Although then again, I was going to say, The Shining didn't do It well wasn't well-received, yeah. No. I wonder how this one did. I I'm think actually it was not sure. well-received. <laughs> I'm was not it, sure. You think so? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't love a good haunting? Yeah. Like a, a, was more, a not super complicated I feel like haunting. it was comparatively, for sure, much yeah. more traditional. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually, um, I, it started off as a joke, and then I was able to just keep going with it through the movie. Like, I was... You know, the first few minutes of the movie, I was like, oh, it has this element of a ghost story. Check, check, check. I went through this whole checklist of, like, the things that you would see in a classic gothic ghost story. But just to give you an idea, and this movie probably established quite a few I was going to say, I wonder if it's one of those, like, Casablanca, (laughs) or it looks like cliche things, but really they invented it. And that's, I've kept that in mind in the few days since we watched this movie, because of course when we watch it, it's nothing new to us, but there are several things that I really, really liked and appreciated about it that I had to kind of pull myself out of and view it more objectively, just because 
I wasn't surprised by anything that happened and it felt a little dated to me, but the time that this came out and how many people loved this movie really made me think about how influential it must have been. So right off the bat, the first thing I checked off was this movie has a fantastic score. Oh yeah, I right immediately. Score, like, right oh yeah. And I kind of knew going into it that we would at least be treated to that because if you read the synopsis before you hit play, it says that the, the main character is a composer. So I was like, okay, so we're probably going to get a nice spooky piano score mm -hmm. for this movie. So I was already looking forward to that. Right off the bat, check. Great score. We have our fair share of thunderstorms, of course. We have that. Also, right off the fucking bat, they just straight up... A horrible tragedy. A horrible right? tragedy to this man's family. Oh, that was... There were some pretty intense... I wasn't ready for that. Yeah. When that first started, like, I, you know, I thought maybe an accident... Obviously, an accident was coming or something. Yeah. Even though you're not necessarily prepared for that either. And I didn't read the synopsis. I guess that was in the initial synopsis. Yeah. But, so I'm like, like, oh, I wonder where they're going. And fucking wife and daughter just get mauled by a semi-truck. Oh, man. That was intense. Yeah. And then he's just stuck in a payphone watching the whole thing happen. Yeah. Like, like that in was, slow motion. Yeah, that was like the first 60 seconds of the movie, and I was like, oh boy. I know, we're like, this okay, is way, this is what we're in for. <laughs> this is way uh, not as much fun as I thought it was going to be. It gets a little more fun yeah. later, but damn, that was Right it. off the get-go. The day. first act was pretty uh, pretty heavy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so you got the... That was kind of the next thing I had on my list, but I had it as the sad protagonist. And usually the protagonist is sad because they've suffered some kind of horrible loss or personal tragedy. So, check. The next one I had was uh, you have to have the giant spooky house. And that spooky house has to come with a caretaker. Check. Going you know the only the thing they didn't do? <laughs> What's that? Is make it so that the caretaker didn't actually exist. Oh. That and been... the caretaker wasn't British. And he wasn't British. So, yeah. You should have had like a... Yeah. British yeah. would have been nice. Yeah. I thought... And his name... He had a British name. I don't remember what his name was, but it was... Uh, I Did I write it down? I guess I forgot to write it down, but I, his name was super British sounding. And then when he started speaking, I was like, oh, he's Canadian. <laughs> well, that makes sense. Yeah. But I mean, it's a, Canadian, I guess it it's a Canadian horror movie, but yeah. So I was like, okay. But you have the caretaker. You have the harbinger who brings you ominous news and warns you about this house. Like nobody has ever been able to live here. Strange things have happened. Check. It's so, the woman to, there's the historical mm -hmm. society. Mm-hmm. And there's an older woman who works there. Oh, right. And she starts warning him, like, nobody has ever been able to live in that house. And nobody's well, she's, she's like, years. pissed off at him. Yeah. she's like, you cheated the system, essentially. Yeah, she said, and like, the paperwork there's a younger woman was... there. She's yeah. like, she rushed it through and she didn't go through the proper channels. Like, yeah. she actually got all pissed off. And the guy's like, yeah. And then she just starts. You, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and then she just starts saying ominous shit yeah. about this house. So it's just funny. <laughs> yeah, he's so chill and nonchalant about everything. I know he's, he's so he's laid like, back. Yeah. What do you care? <laughs> and, then, laid. <laughs> and then of course the last thing on the list, you've got to have a séance, and it had a pretty awesome séance. I really liked that scene. So we'll get into that in a little bit. But right off the bat, you've got the full checklist for a solid ghost story. So we kind of gave a little bit of, of a synopsis of what this movie is about, but just a quick recap. There's the uh, composer. His name is John Russell. He's our protagonist. He suffers this awful loss at the beginning of the movie where both his wife and daughter are killed in an accident while they're on vacation. And, you know, four months have gone by. He's grieving horribly, and he ends up taking a job teaching piano at a university. 
and when he takes on this job, he needs a place to live, and he's looking for a house, so he ends up renting the biggest house in the universe that belongs to the historical society, and it's haunted as fuck. Yeah. Just a very yeah. bare-bones recap. There's a lot more to it than that, but that's the basic premise. Yeah. Something is going on in this house. And it starts pretty quickly when he moves in. They take a little bit of time to kind of let you get to know him and develop his character a little bit, and you get some scenes with him teaching the class and going to this, uh, is it a benefit that he goes to, like a music benefit? And that's where we see the senator? Yeah, it's um, the local like orchestra or whatever, and there's a, a music house, and it's a benefit concert that they're you know raising money for the musical society, I think, or something right. like that. Right, okay. Yeah, so it gets going pretty quickly, and one of the things I really liked about this movie was the main character, the protagonist. I thought he was a really interesting character, and he just has this really calm, reserved, but somehow still down-to-earth energy about him. Yeah, I was going to say, I think he's probably my favorite part of the movie. Yeah, he was really interesting. He was interesting, he was somehow relatable. Yeah. Even though I probably have zero in common with him. Right. But I felt like he's someone that I could know and get to know and have a conversation with or talk about just about anything with for some reason, even though he's not a gregarious type of fellow or anything like that. Yeah. But he just has a essence and a sense to him and a way of conducting himself that is both reassuring and fun to watch, but as you said, also a little mysterious and interesting at the same time. Yeah, I was really intrigued by him really the entire time. And the first, really the first two thirds of the movie, he is so calm and so reserved and just so curious about what's going on in his house with the haunting. And of course, he's a little afraid and uncertain as to what's going on. And he's he starts to get frustrated. And on top of that, he's grieving the loss of his family. But it's really not until the very end where he really starts to get angry and frustrated and kind of lose it a little bit. And when that does happen, I feel like it's that much more emphasized by how calm he is up until that point. Yes. And it's a lot more impactful. Yeah, I thought it was unique as a character reacting to, we'll call it paranormal phenomena, in that he really approached it from a a very pragmatic type of way. And he was curious, but not closed-minded. And he didn't really care to understand exactly how what was taking place was taking place so much as why and just trying to figure out the why and the what it wanted and what was happening rather than the the how exactly yeah and more often than not you know ghost stories are of course about not just unfinished business but the very human need and desire for closure And he suffered this horrible loss. It was extremely sudden. He doesn't have closure on it. He can't let it go. He's still in the throes of his grief. And then this haunting starts. And I'm I'm sure that he feels like if he can figure out what happened to this ghost, then it might give him some closure about what happened to his own family and his daughter in particular. Maybe. I also just got the impression... But I think he actually mentioned something along these lines, or at least implies it, that the reason he surmises the ghost or the, the presence is acting out with him is because of his loss. Yeah. Not so much the fact that it will 
has anything to do with his daughter and his wife or anything, but the fact that he understands loss and he understands, you know, the the impact of this. And so he's someone that can be willing to, to try to set things right because things aren't right for him. Yeah. He'll never have closure, you know, even though he knows what happened. But here is a person who understands a sense of loss that may be motivated enough to see this thing through. That's a really good point because we do find out that other people have tried to live in that house and they they didn't last. And maybe this entity, if we find out it's a young boy, Joseph, feels like John might be the only one so far who could help him. And I think it could, kind of goes to show the fact that no one else could stay there. Everyone else is scared of death. Yeah. Whereas He's got nothing else to our lose. protagonist, what's his name again? John. John has faced death. You know, he's not any more scared of it than he, if anything else, he's angry with it. Yeah, he has nothing else to lose. So, I I think that really kind of motivates the whole premise of why he's the one that stays and why Joseph is able to communicate with him the way that he does. And and almost to a point where it's a a relationship where they literally, you know, communicate with each other because there's a part at the, in the movie where... John is a little frustrated because Joseph is kind of playing games, like fucking with him. And to the point where it was no longer about the house or what was going on, but it got personal in the fact that he took his daughter's ball that he brought with him. Oh, yeah. And, like, it mysteriously vanishes from this cabinet that he has in the downstairs um, office that he stays in and starts, like, bouncing down the stairs. And then John's, like, understandably pissed off. Yeah. And upset about this because it's his daughter's and it reminds him so much of his family to the point where he, I think it's really one of the only personal items that he took with him besides photographs, obviously. And he almost, like, relinquishes that in a, a way of closure for himself. He's like, I don't, you know, this isn't my, this ball isn't my daughter. I don't need this. And... He goes and drives and throws it off a bridge out into the a lake or an ocean or a body of water or whatever it was. And then he comes back and the ball drops down the stairs wet this time. Which is actually probably one of, one of my favorite scenes. It was really cool. Yeah, I definitely wanted to go into that scene because that was also one of my favorites. And such a cool, just such a cool trick. Yeah. And, you know, he's in the other room. And I feel like this movie, especially the first act, did such a good job with sounds. And, you know, whether it's the relentless pounding or the sound of the water running, or in this case, the ball just bouncing down the stairs, you hear it before you see it. And when you hear it, you know exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. And you're like, shit. Fuck that. (laughs) (laughs) Like, no, no, no. And just the, I feel like the camera angles in this were very clever at, not showing you things until absolutely necessary. So you have this like very narrow shot diagonally across the bottom of the staircase into the room where John is, and you know that's where he kept the ball. So just the shot of him standing there with the staircase just out of view, you intuitively know exactly what is bouncing down the stairs. Right. Just based on him, on where he's standing. And then, you know, he walks out and looks up at the stairs, and you see this red and white ball just bouncing down the stairs. That was so creepy. And then he throws it in the river, and then you know what's going to happen, but that doesn't make it any less creepy when he gets home, and the second he walks in the door, the ball starts bouncing down the stairs again, and it's wet. Yeah, but I'll also, not only was that just a great scene, but what I was trying to get out there was, I feel like it's one of those points where it 
John was like, okay, fuck you. Yeah, like you're crossing a line. Yeah, he's like, here, I'm listening, I'm working with you, trying to figure out what the fuck's going on here. Yeah. But now you're, now you're digging at me. Yeah. You know, and I, I respect that about the movie, and I respect that about John. You know, yeah. I thought it was kind of an interesting thing, where it's like, you know, you may have forced some other people out of here, or I, I understand that you're pissed off, I understand you're not happy, but it's not my fault. I'm not the one who did it to you, so don't yeah. fuck with me. He even yells, he yells later when he finally just reaches his breaking point and he screams at this ghost, like, what do you want from me? I have done everything I can do for you. Right. There's nothing else I can do. That's what I mean. I, I thought it was, I really liked that part of the movie. Yeah, he was just, I really liked his character and his performance. I thought it was great. So uh, just going back to the first act, maybe we could talk a little bit about, a little bit more about the actual haunting and then we can kind of get into how the story branches out in the the middle to the end of the movie. So I really liked that scene. And I think that the first thing that happens when he moves into this house is every single day at 6 a.m., there's just this relentless pounding coming from somewhere upstairs in the house. And it's been waking him up every morning. And just to add another layer to that, Uh, the sink turns on by itself. And one of the things I really appreciated in particular about the water turning on by itself, the first time that it happened, I think it was when uh, Claire, the the younger woman who works at the Historical Society, leaves him alone in the house and he hears the pounding in the water. But, you know, when you turn on the kitchen sink, it's not very loud. But it was incredibly, deafeningly loud when the sink was turned on. And I feel like that kind of... I don't know, to me it kind of emphasized for the first time how alone he was, not just in that house, but in general. And it's kind of like, you know, when you're when you're out in the woods and you're camping and you're super vulnerable, if you hear a squirrel step on a twig, it's the loudest thing ever. Yeah. And it just emphasizes how alone and how vulnerable you are. And yeah. I, that's kind of what I got from that. Just the water, the sound of the water being so deafening and loud, just reverberating through that house. I got, what I got more out of that was the aspect that it was communicating with him more than anybody else. Yeah. Yeah. Then there's obviously, you know, other weird things that happen throughout the course, you know, with the water, if I can mention that real quick, is it kind of grows out of hand at some point and not only just like the kitchen sink turn on but then he goes and like turns that off and then he hears like water running upstairs and he like goes upstairs and the bathroom sink is now on oh that's right and then he shuts that one off and he hears like the shower going on the floor above him and he goes upstairs and it's this bathtub and it's just being filled with water and it's almost, you know, full and he goes over and I think he shuts off the water and I think he goes in it was actually filling up the bathtub like the plug was in there and i think he goes to unplug it and the moment he sticks his hand into the water he gets this vision of just tumultuous activity in the bathtub and the face of what looks like a small child or even a doll yeah and um underneath the water and it like completely startles him and he doesn't know what the fuck just happened but i almost positive that is the point in the movie where he the next scene you see is him going to the historical society to be like okay what the fuck is yeah, going on what here? is going on here <laughs> <laughs> i cannot be the only one that sees this shit yeah like I don't like, know what, what's this. the history here <laughs> tell me what's going on 
So that I think that's the point where it really goes beyond just kind of strange happenings to he's convinced that there is definitely something unusual and paranormal and he's looking to investigate the history of the house. Yeah. And through that, he finds information about some of the previous tenants, but not very much. There's like kind of a weird mystery going on um, where there's like, there's only a history of the house up to a certain year. And then anything before that is missing from the files. And as he's kind of investigating all of this, there's some point where all of a sudden he's outside and a piece of glass from the house like breaks and almost hits him. And you think like somebody threw a ball or something and broke a window, but the glass broke from the inside out. Yeah. And he looks up and it's at, you know, the highest level of the house in this tiny little room and it flew pretty far. It was like a pretty it was a significant break. Yeah. And it literally like almost broke and like tried to like throw it at him or something, you know, to get his attention. And he goes back upstairs to figure out where it's at, and he goes into this little room, and it's just a tiny closet, and there's no window there. And he's like, all right, what the fuck's going on in this house, you know? And he's just doing it to himself, but you can kind of see his body language. He's like, at this point, he's just like, what, I'm, I, what the fuck is going on? He's kind of pissed off, and he's like, I'm getting to the bottom of this thing, yeah. you know? And then the pounding starts again. And the pounding starts, and then he's... There's, they turn this room into like a closet and there's these shelves up and then he realizes the shelves are covering up a door that's been like painted and padlocked shut. That was another thing I actually had on my list of a good haunted house movie was a hidden room. Yeah. So thanks for uh, reminding me of mm-hmm. that. Yeah. <laughs> so he tears all this shit apart, throwing everything out and he gets into this room where the glass broke from and he finds this cobweb ridden room that has... This very antique and creepy looking wheelchair in it that's been sitting there. He sees a writing desk. He sees a mantle. And is that also where there was a bathtub? Yes, there was a a bathtub. What looked like a child's activity book dated 1909 Mm -hmm. and a music box. Right. And so prior to this, I got to jump back just for a second. Mm -hmm. We said he's a composer. Yeah. And he's been composing music while he's been in this house. And it's the first music he's composed since his wife and daughter passed. And he's recorded what he's been writing, and he shows it to this woman, historical society lady. Claire. Claire. And she makes a comment on it, and at the time we were watching it, I thought it was kind of an unusual... Like, I didn't really get lullaby out of what he was playing. Yeah. But she's like, oh, it reminds me of a lullaby. And he's like, huh, I guess it kind of is. And, you know, I just kind of took out the grain of salt, but I also, in the subconscious of my mind, put a little tack in that because I thought it was a little strange. Mm -hmm. So now let's jump back to where he found this music box, and he goes downstairs and he opens it, and this music box looks like it hasn't been touched since 1909, so, you know, a good 70 years or whatever. And he opens it up and it starts playing its little tune, and it's the same melody that he's been composing. That was so cool. Yeah, it was a really cool scene. You know, and then he goes back and he's, you can see the look in his eyes and he's like, <laughs> motherfucker. Like, nope. <laughs> and he, you know, ha- has been recording himself. So he's got this, you know, tape deck and he rebinds it and plays it with the music box. And he's like, note for note, this is the same fucking song 
and he's really tripping out now. And he's like, I've never heard this before yeah. in my life. And then Claire's like, oh, it must have been a popular tune back in the day. And yeah. you're just like, what? You're right. <laughs> no. She's like, well, it was popular enough to be made into a music box. He's like, yeah, that's fine. I've never heard it. Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> all fine verbatim. and dandy, but this is brand new to me. So that's kind of like another check the box type of thing, I think, almost yeah. in a way. Yeah. And uh, I really enjoyed that particular scene. Me too. That was really cool. I, I really liked all the haunting stuff. I also thought it was a really good scene and just kind of, it really just made me feel for John, but uh, it was after he had, I think he was talking to somebody who had worked for the school about his loss and how it had been four months. And then it just cuts to him sobbing in bed at 6 a.m. And then the relentless pounding just starts up again as he's sobbing in bed. And I, mm-hmm. I thought that was a really effective scene right just emphasizing his grief and just how this ghost or whatever it was just is not letting up it felt very tense and stressful i really liked that Mm, definitely so if i had known before we watched this how how much bigger the story was going to get and how much it would kind of branch away or out from john in this house i definitely would have paid more attention to the senator at the beginning of the movie, I didn't really think he was going to be a big factor. But it turns out, as we find out over the next hour of the movie, the senator is actually revealed to be the changeling. So we'll get to that. So is it before or after the seance that we find out what happened to Joseph? It's, it's like right after, huh? When he's listening yeah, back I mean, to the Yeah, we don't find everything, but that is uh, where they find out Joseph's name. Okay. And then they also get some information about what happened to Joseph. That's right. Enough. So that in conjunction with some of the information that the uh, Harbanger provided them. I always think of like a headbanger. Harbanger. (laughs) Harbanger. So yeah, the the names that they got in conjunction with the, uh, he knows that 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 activity book was 1909. And that's kind of where I think the last information was like from 1910 or something like that. Or maybe even later, it might have been 1920 or something like that. So they know that where the records normally are kept, somebody has lost everything from this point, which makes it very suspicious. Yeah. And so they are able to now get a name along with the time and go through the um, microfiche uh, newspapers at the library I've to try to gather. To do I know that. it looks so satisfying. Yeah, I really want to do that. Me too. I know, maybe in my, in my my retirement years, I'll become an amateur sleuth. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like the best way to retire. Yeah. But I did like the uh, seance scene. I thought that was pretty cool. Me too. That was also up there on the list of scenes that I really liked. It was really well done. It was creepy. It was just a really good seance scene. And I particularly liked when everybody had left. And John goes back and plays the recordings from the seance and he hears this boy's voice on the recording, like a, like an EVP. Yeah. It took the seance took a lot of boxes. Yeah. I think as far as the different types of uh, spiritualism type of stuff. Yeah. And mediums and different ways of communicating. So initially I think the type that she's trained for is, what do they call that? With the, the hand, the writing, I oh, forget the there's a name for it. I don't know what that's called. Yeah. But basically, it's the um, one of the ways that you communicate is through basically allowing the spirit to um, work through your hand. So, like, you're just letting your pencil, like, rest on there. Or 
I actually hadn't seen that technique before, what she uses. This particular one where she, while she's like in this trance state, she just basically scribbles circles um, the whole time. Yeah. Keeps her hand moving. And then as she's asking questions, all of a sudden, like, her hand will, you know, start making these sharp lines and make letters and shit like that. Yeah. Which was kind of interesting because I've seen it where they just, like, let their hand rest and then, like, loosely. But I thought it was interesting that she had to, like, keep motion going the whole time. And then she's asking all these questions. And so right there, they get the name Joseph. They get, um, I'm not sure if they really get anything else. They wrote down some words. I don't remember what they were. Well, initially they think that, um, because they find out in the the library archives that there there was a girl who lived in that house named Cora Bernard. And she was killed. She was hit by a uh, some kind of cart at yeah, a young like age. Yeah, a coal cart she, or something like, like that. A, yeah, a coal cart. And initially, John thought this might be who was haunting the house. And they, I think that's one of the questions they asked her in the seance. Like, are you the girl who was killed by the coal cart? And then when he goes back later and plays the tape, you have that super creepy whisper of Joseph just going, no. Really, really creepy whisper and... You know, if John had had any doubt in his mind before the seance, it's gone now. Right. Done so. So pretty quick after that, it's almost like when he plays the tape, like a door is opened. Yeah, so the uh, during the seance, the uh, medium is writing down these words. And uh, later on, or not long after, John is having these almost visions uh, going through the house. And you hear this voice saying things like, Father... My metal, my room, the ranch. The well. The well. And I think uh, pretty soon after the seance, we have, we see the flashback of what actually happened to Joseph. And it was a really haunting scene. And I did not expect it. Yeah, it was dark. Yeah, really intense. And I I was kind of shocked by how much they showed in this scene. But basically, everything that's been going on in this house for the first 30 minutes of the movie is tied together in this scene where you see this little boy is up in this attic room and he's in the bathtub and you see the the wheelchair in the background, the music box, the book, everything that John had found is in this room and the boy is sitting in the bathtub and then his father comes in and grabs him by the legs and pulls his legs up so that his head is forced underwater. Also, keep in mind that this child is physically handicapped and we don't know exactly what he has but he's in a wheelchair for a reason so he has no use of or a very little use of his legs yeah so lifting him up in that capacity like he can't even kick or anything to try to help himself no which makes it really hard to watch it was really intense and messed up and you basically watch this entire drowning from the moment that the this man picks up his legs to when he stops breathing because he's drowned. But as he's drowning, there's water splashing on the floor, there's water going everywhere, and then he's just pounding on the side of the bathtub, and it's the exact same sound that John has been hearing since he moved into that house, which is just so creepy and so effective. So that was a a really good horror scene, in my opinion, and just a really neat way to, I don't mean neat as in cool, but like seamless way to kind of tie everything that's been happening so far together. Right, like nothing's been random whatsoever. Exactly, yeah. So And even the the way that the he was trying to bring him upstairs with the water turning on and seeing the bathtub and like he's been everything he's been doing has been basically just to lead him to this room 
and to this realization of what's going on. Yeah. So after we find out what happened to Joseph and that he was essentially murdered by his father, that's where the story kind of starts branching out from that house a little bit. And we start to learn more and more about the mystery behind this place and what it was, what happened to this kid. And at this point, it was just the way that things unfolded was a little bit confusing to me. And I I don't know if I wasn't paying close enough attention, but when they started revealing exactly what happened to Joseph and everything that went down, I was just a little bit, I felt a little bit lost. Yeah, I liked the the murder mystery aspect because I went from quote-unquote traditional, even though it may have been unique haunting, if you will, to find out this information. And now it's turned into a murder mystery where he now has information about what's going on and that something obviously was afoot and is now vigorously and determinately trying to uncover the facts of what happened here. And one of the things that he is able to do is get information about who lived in this house in 1909 and who this father and son were. And like you mentioned earlier, there was kind of this correlation or some kind of tie between him and that Cora girl that had died. Yeah, I wasn't 100% clear on what that connection was. Did you pick up on that? So what I got out of it, and again, they I feel maybe I was just getting a little bored at this point, so I wasn't paying as much attention, like Same. you had said. yeah. I also kind of feel like for it being the crux of what this whole thing hinges on, that they just glided right over really quickly. Yeah, they kind of blew through it at that diner scene when they're like at the table talking about everything. Yeah, but what I got out of it is that he found that this father and son had lived on a ranch that was adjacent to where the girl Cora had lived, right? And that they were friends. Joseph and the girl that died were very good friends. I also got the impression that Cora's family or whatever didn't have anybody else mm-hmm. besides Cora, and that they loved um, Joseph as one of their own. And so when Cora died, they left Joseph their money. Okay, when that's they... the piece I was missing, is how Joseph's family got the money. That's yeah, and, and in missing. particular, okay. the family did not like Joseph's father. Okay. They specifically wrote in their will that Joseph is the only one that is um, can have this money. He must live to the age of 18, and at 18, he will get this money. Yeah, and then and if he died just... before a certain age, I think it was like if he died before 21, uh, the money would automatically go to charity. Yeah, or I think it was 18, 21, Something whatever like it was. Yeah. But he had to grow into an adult, and um, they specifically said, like, this is not going to his dad. Right. No matter what. Yeah. You know, this is going to him. And I, because they were afraid that it would go to... Um, Joseph as a child, but they knew that Joseph was ill, and yeah. so they didn't want it to go to him and then have him pass away and then the money go to the dad. Yeah. So they're like, you need to get past this shit, but if you do, it's all yours. And so that is where he gets the information about where they might have lived and if there was a well there and kind of the motive. You know, he still doesn't get all the information. He doesn't understand exactly what's going on, but he understands that his dad had a motive for killing his own son. Yeah. Then you find out that he moved from that, like, the United States to Europe in, I think it was 1910, very shortly after Joseph had died, but had apparently brought Joseph with him. Right. 
And so he starts putting all these clues together and essentially, and again, I don't completely understand everything that went down, but the, the overall essence of the story is that the dad basically took a child from an orphanage and you don't know whether or not that child was in on it or not or completely understood what was going on because again he probably was only nine or ten at the time or something like that but the way that the dad covered it up essentially was that he killed his own son then he took an orphan and brought him with him to europe and supposedly um, put him into this rehabilitation center where they were able to, you know, bring life back into his legs and he recovered fully. And by the time he came back to the States when he was over 18 years old, anybody that did happen to know him as a child, which was not very many people, I mean, how are you going to recognize someone when they grow from 10 to 20 years old? Exactly. So nobody, and, and even then, there was really nobody that would question it. Yeah. Um, especially if it wasn't people that really knew the son all that well, but just knew the dad. And like, so he had a kid and like, you don't know what the kid fucking looked like. Yeah. That is where you start to get a sense of who this changeling is, who it was this child that he brought with him and who inherited this money from the dad when he passed away. And that's where you find out that it was the Senator. Yeah. Senator Carmichael. Yeah. Right? Okay. So as we're talking about it, that is a really cool twist yeah and a really cool story i just think the delivery was kind of bad same but as we're talking about it i'm excited i'm like oh shit what happened next and then it was the senator no way like i'm shocked and horrified and interested like it's really cool like where did they get the kid from and then you find out you know like this the senator has been actually the one who gave the money to help the historical historical society to maintain this place and then you're wondering like why was that a sense of guilt he claims he didn't know his father was a bad man so like you don't know you really don't know how much information the senator really knows do you think he knows the senator yeah, do you think he knows something? Because they, Absolutely. that was the thing that confused me the most. So you think he does? I think he's just completely in denial. Okay, I, I kind of wondered that too. Because at one point when a, when John and Claire really start looking into things, that older woman at the Historical Society calls the senator and says they've been going through the files. No, I th- that's the thing. It's like, he, A, has been keeping this place open. Two, he's basically hired somebody inside the society that runs it to keep an eye on things and to make sure nobody lives in there or does anything with the place. And three, he has made her basically hide the evidence of all that missing, you know, files. Like, she's the one who, for whatever reason, you know, I think maybe it was just kind of that had that know-it-allism and she wanted to be the one to be like, well, actually. Right. You know, <laughs> she's the one who actually gives them some information about beforehand, verbally, but then she can tell that she wasn't supposed to. Like, she was hiding that information, but she knew about it intimately, okay. you know? Yeah. So all that, I mean, the governor or the senator, I mean, tries... To, like, kind of act like his, he didn't know what was going on in some sense. But I really feel that was just that last sense of trying to, we all hide things from ourselves or paint, paint a prettier picture of our history. And I think that he kind of had painted a version of truth in his own mind or justified it in some way or capacity that was now being confronted with the truth. I like that interpretation. Yeah, I, I think that that holds really well and it kind of has a bigger impact when you look at the story as a whole and who the senator is and this lavish lifestyle, lavish privileged lifestyle that he's been living his entire life, just being barely held together by this lie that he's telling himself 
And when it finally all comes crashing down, it literally kills him. Like, the realization literally kills him. And it looks like he dies of a, a heart attack, it seems like, at the Something very end like of the movie. Yeah. Something like that. He just, like, clutches his chest and drops dead. And if I could go back just a little bit before we get to the ending of the movie and kind of wrap it up. There, there was one moment where um, it kind of felt like a little bit of comic relief. In the movie, it's where uh, John and Claire go to this ranch after... John has had this vision about where Joseph's body might be buried. And there's this woman living there now with her daughter. And basically, John shows up at her house a little bit unhinged at this point. And he was like, hey, can I uh, can I dig up your floor? And she's like, absolutely not. Are you insane? But then they kind of get to talking. And this woman, this mother, reveals that her daughter woke up screaming a couple nights before. And I, I don't remember exactly what she said she had dreamed about, but it was something about a young boy and she was just so... Like, he was coming up through the floor or something. Well, she specifically said, when you called me, had it been any other day of the week or any other time, I wouldn't have given you the time of day. Yeah, I wouldn't even let but you But you mentioned house. that you had that seance on Wednesday. And on Wednesday night, my daughter woke up in the middle of the night screaming saying she saw a boy coming up out of her floor talking about a well or something like that. Okay, again, when we're talking about it, really cool. Yeah, and that, you know, that was the information that he gave that this, basically this kid had possibly died in a well on her property. It looked like it was on her property, and she's like, that was just too much of a coincidence to pass up, so I yeah. like, I hear you out. <laughs> but then he asks if he could dig up her floor, and she's like, no. So then, you know, he goes home for the night, and that very night, her daughter wakes up screaming bloody murder again, pointing at the floor, and then the next cut, it's like a jump cut to them taking a chainsaw <laughs> to the, the floor. floor. Yeah, that's pretty fun. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. Yeah, no that. problem. Go ahead and it up. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, fuck this. I, I enjoyed that scene, but that that's kind of where I started getting interested again, because things had kind of slowed down. I was a little bit confused. I was having a hard time following, but then... That kind of roped him back in a little bit. And, of course, he found the bones down there, uh, this necklace, this medal that Joseph had been talking about. And he decides to confront the senator. That's when this whole scene with the senator, you know, just denying that his father could be a murderer, kicking John out of his house. And uh, so after he confronts the senator, he goes back to this house. And this is where he kind of really starts getting frustrated. And he doesn't know what Joseph wants at this point. He's confronted the senator. He's figured out what happened to him. He found his body. He doesn't know what else to do. And one thing I kind of didn't like is at this point in the movie, they it's maybe 10 to 15 minutes from the ending. And they decide to all of a sudden introduce a new character, this detective. And I, I don't fully understand the motivation behind that. I don't know if it was to show that the cops are in on this whole situation with the senator or what the intention was behind that. But basically this detective shows up, kind of threatens John to back off, and then he leaves the house and immediately gets killed in a car accident. Well, what I got out of that was because the senator called him, and he wasn't a detective, he was the sergeant. Okay. And so he calls up the sergeant, and I really think it was just kind of, A, it emphasized how powerful the senator is because he can just call up local law enforcement and be like, hey, take care of this guy. Yeah. And they don't need to hear one word or another about what's going on. Like, it's basically his own private muscle, you know, this extension of what's supposed to be the, the peacekeepers. So it emphasized how powerful he is. But it also, I feel, emphasized how powerful Joseph is and how motivated he was at this point because... 
you imagine that this has been going on for a long time. Every person that's come into this house, he's tried to contact. But as things start getting heated, as things start becoming uncovered, Joseph becomes more and more powerful in a sense, or at least more active. And to the point where John's frustrated because he's like, is relentless with John. But also to the point where the, you know, like this cop comes in and is just kind of meddling and is basically just insinuating, hey, I'm going to put an end to this. He's and Joseph him. straight up kills him. Yeah. So I think that goes to show, like, this is some serious shit. Yeah. It, it actually kind of bothered me how powerful this little kid ghost was. But, you know, I know with movies like Poltergeist, you have a really powerful entity who can cause a house to explode or implode, cause fires to start. But it just seemed like it just escalated so intensely, the power that this ghost of this child had it, it didn't quite sit right with me but i did love that flaming staircase that yeah, was super that was cool good. that was a good scene. shot so it basically ends with the the house going down in flames and literally exploding and you know simultaneously while this house is burning the senator is it looks like uh, joseph is giving the senator visions of what happened to him and this is when you know everything starts shaking violently and then the senator grabs his chest and just drops dead and that's essentially the end of the movie is the senator dying and then john and claire escaping the burning house and showing up at the senator's house to see his body being taken away yeah one thing i would did want to add though just yeah. another aspect of john that i really liked yeah is that the senator believes that john is trying to blackmail him in a sense oh that's right i forgot about that whole sub story so the senator believes that John is trying to blackmail him, and it's at the point that he shows him the, the medal, and he understands what that is. And at first he just kind of bails, and then he hires that police detect or um, sergeant, and then the sergeant dies, and then he's like, fuck. Peace. <laughs> you know, he doesn't know what's going on, but he's like, I yeah. need to listen to this guy, or at least hear him out. Yeah. And he comes in, and John is like, you know what? This is going to sound fucking crazy, but I'm just going to lay it down on the table. And he basically explains everything that he's learned. And he has that gold medallion, which is really the only physical evidence that John has. Mm -hmm. And the senator's like, fine, how much do you want? Blah, blah, blah. And he's acting like a prissy little Mitch McConnell or something like that. <laughs> and then he, uh, John just basically lays down the metal. And he's like, I don't want, he didn't say this, but in so many words, he's like, I don't want your fucking money, you asshole. Yeah. I want you to fucking make amends. Yeah. You know, or at Just least take accountability. It. And the guy's, one, taken aback by this, but really, really like John in this scene a lot. Because here he has this very powerful man, basically on his knees at his disposal. He could so easily take advantage of him in one sense or another. And he's not even trying to necessarily go forward and make it a public escapade or anything like that. It doesn't it's, even cross his mind. Doesn't even, it's not in the works, you know. He just wants it to be a mano-a-mano human being thing. Like, just be accountable for your actions. This doesn't need to be something where we bring in you know, monetary value or you have some kind of political reprimands to achieve. Just take accountability for your actions. Peace. I did my part. I'm out. Right. Yeah, that's such a good point. I, you know, I liked him in this whole movie, but I, that scene in particular didn't really stand out to me. But now that you're relaying it back to me, it really just shows how much integrity he has as a person. Yeah. It's just 100% concrete. Yeah. It doesn't even cross his mind. 
was great. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm appreciating him more the more we're talking about him. But even like his his subtle facial expressions when the when things start to initially unfold and when he hears a strange noise and just the very subtle way that he'll kind of raise an eyebrow or turn his head to look behind him at the door that just opened by itself. Like everything was so just well executed and well controlled by him. Yeah. I gotta say, this has happened to me just consistently throughout the years. I'm a huge Simpsons fan, and I always was. <laughs> and I can't tell you how many times where I've seen, you know, episodes of The Simpsons over and over again that I loved. And then years later, I would find out that an episode or a scene or a thing was based on a movie or a actual thing that took place. And so it like all of a sudden just like clicked and took on a new meaning for me. And this is one of those. And I actually knew exactly how it was going to end the moment I saw the house. Not exactly what happened with the, you know, the ghost and everything, but I, yeah. like, I knew the house was going to go down in flames. <laughs> and I actually thought it was going to straight up explode. And Be- it did. Yeah, it did. <laughs> because the very first Simpsons Halloween episode, there's actually one of the skits is about them going into this house. It's like a whole outside of it, at least. And the story's different, but it's basically like this haunted house. And it's a house that nobody's ever been able to live in before. And everyone gets scared of and all this haunting and everything. But, you know, it takes a different turn. But eventually the the house implodes on itself because it decides it can't live with the Simpsons. And, you know, it's just been a a fun episode. I thought it was just like a normal haunting house or whatever. But after all this time, I finally find out that's the, you know, that was the the Simpsons (laughs) Halloween on the Changeling. I have to go back and watch that again after seeing this movie because I know I've seen that episode, but I want to go back and see it again after we're familiar with the things that happened in this movie. Yeah, and how I, don't, I always go back. Yeah. But like recently, we also watched Wild Wild Country, right? Which is a great cult documentary, which is fucking amazing. That, like really that was watch it. Yeah, quality it's good. television. Very good. Super entertaining <laughs> to say the least. That was a treat. <laughs> but I didn't know that there's a Simpsons episode about cults. Where Homer gets uh, involved and gets the Simpsons involved in this um, cult <laughs> uh, commune type of thing, and you know the Sim- I mean the episode in particular takes on a lot of different essences of different types of cults, but you know one of the things that they do is you know the cult leader drives by in a, a Rolls Royce every day, and, like <laughs> with this, <laughs> which was based on uh, a true events that I didn't know about until. 20 years later. So always, always surprising me with their uh, level of detail and intellect. Never ends. Never. Amazing. You learn something new every day. I know. Okay. So, so just to kind of wrap things up, you know, all in all, especially after talking about this movie, I, I definitely appreciate it a little bit more and talking about the story with you. It's, it's a really good story. It is. Really interesting. I, I just think that especially like the middle chunk of the movie Parts of it were kind of poorly executed and a little bit convoluted, and it was just a little bit hard for me to stay engaged and follow it. But there were things that I really did love about it. I loved the scenes of the actual haunting taking place. I loved the protagonist. It was a fantastic score. And, you know, the only thing is I, if I'm going to watch a ghost story, I prefer it to be a little bit more, I want to say a little bit more claustrophobic, Mm. a little bit more contained like taking place in one location, a small cast, a little bit more uh, inwardly focused, I guess is a way I can describe it. Like this one kind of, like we were talking about, branched out to be more of a, a murder mystery. And there was this 
big conspiracy involved and multiple people were in on it. You had the Senate, the whole thing with the Senator. It, it just kind of got a little bit bigger than I like my ghost stories to be. But all in all, I think it was a good movie and I'm glad that I saw it. I do wish that I had seen it when I was younger. But you know, all that being said, I we rate on a scale of zero to 12 beers and I decided to give this one a nine out of 12 beers. Nice. Do you think that's fair? I do. And I, I sometimes feel like we always rate it the same. That's pretty much where I was at with it. Really? Okay, that's good. And I kind of feel bad about it because I, I know it's a solid movie. And I think if I had seen it earlier and I'd known about it earlier, I might have a little bit more, I guess, that reminiscence aspect of it or like that originality and nostalgia aspect of it. But watching it from a first time now, there is... And I'm trying to give it the benefit of the doubt of... I'm not even sure if they really did pioneer these things. Yeah. But I'm even giving them the benefit of the doubt that they did. I felt there was certainly a lot of things that just kind of kept on scraping off the score. Yeah, I, I didn't like, it, it was like just a the tired. acting of most of the other characters in this. They they weren't particularly great or at least consistent. Yeah. You know, maybe they'd be good at a particular type of scene, but when it came to like the scare scene or something like that. It just got all of a sudden, like, cartoony, Scooby-Doo scared and stuff like that. Like, yeah. with the woman, Claire, there's a point where she, like, sees the uh, wheelchair up at the top of the stairs, and she's just, like, there with these, like, big softball yeah. eyes, and she's like... <gasps> there's also that weird scene where she... It's, like, this weird cut scene, and then she just, like, comes into the house sobbing hysterically. Yeah. And it they never explain why. Right, and, and that's when it was like weird stuff like that with some of the other. It seems like something got cut out that was sure. there before. Yeah, it's definitely. just a strange scene that so didn't fit. That there was like some of those cuts that didn't make sense, and then like you said, I really liked the murder mystery aspect, and I think had they cut out some of the middle stuff and spent a little bit more time developing that, so it was understandable. A little more show don't tell. Yeah, rather than just be like. Oh, yeah, by the way, everything you've been watching up to this point, we're going to explain <laughs> it all in over pancakes. Yeah. And then we're going to have, like, a and minute and a half. And then we're going to go and kill the senator. Yeah. You know, like, maybe. <laughs> it's like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Hit the <laughs> what brakes. What the fuck just happened? <laughs> you know? So, because of stuff like that, it just kind of knocked it off for me yeah. to the point where I feel like a nine is a, a, a reasonable amount of beers. I think so too. Like I've actually had more fun talking about the story than I did trying to parse it out for myself as yeah. we were watching it. It, it. it had like all the right elements yeah. and it had a lot of good stuff going on, but it also... Fell short in some areas. Yeah. Yeah, I think nine out of 12 is, is very reasonable. I, I think that's a, a solid rating for this. So what kind of beer would you pair the Changeling with? I think, and I don't mean this in an insulting way, but I think I'd pair it with a brown. A brown ale? Yeah. I think that's perfect, honestly. And it's it's not that brown ales aren't good. I, I find them to be just a little bit boring. But for the most part, you know, they're a little plain, but they're tasty. Most of them are tasty. And I feel like a lot of other beers take on the elements of a brown ale and improve upon them. Yeah. Just like this movie. <laughs> So I think that's a I think that's a perfect a perfect beer pairing. Are there any browns that you would recommend or that you like? Or you're not really a, a brown ale fan, huh? No, the I'm last brown I remember having that was good was one by the Rogue Brewery. Oh, the nut brown one. Yeah, it was like a nut. Oh, I'm not sure if it was a nutmeg or just a nut. A nut. 
a nut brown. <laughs> that was um, that was good. I yeah. remember I had like a bald dude on it for some reason. Mm-hmm. But we had it when we were in the Sequoias, and it may have just been the fact that we got to have. I think it was like one of the first times we had that we actually we had camping. a beer when we were camping. Yeah, and uh, it was nice. Yeah, that, that's the thing about brown ales is that they're nice. <laughs> I, I thought that was a particularly nice one at the time. Yeah. You know what I've actually recently kind of started enjoying again? I don't mind a Newcastle now and then. You know, that's it's, really the first type of beer that I had that wasn't a, you know, Budweiser or something like that. Yeah, it's not bad. And I liked them at the time, and I definitely grew out of them. But I, you know, I can uh, I can definitely see where people... I haven't had it in a long time, so I don't know. I had one recently. My mom always has it. At her house. She always has them stocked. Oh, so, really? Yeah. That used to be my thing when I could... There was this uh, place where I could go play pool, and I knew the guys that worked there. Oh, yeah? And uh, I always looked like I was, like, 21 when I was 12. And, um, I don't know, I was, like, a, a teenager, you know, like, 18 or something like that at the time. And there was a, it was a pool hall, and I liked to play pool there. And uh, the guys knew me, so they'd let me drink beer. Nice. And, like, that was my drink, my Newcastle. Newcastle? Wine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, like, my go-to if I'm somewhere that doesn't have anything like any craft beer on tap and it's my choices are like bud coors pbr and newcastle like i'm newcastle is just gold compared to those for me <laughs> like <laughs> it's a treat compared to that so i'll go for that but it, it's pretty good so yeah i think a, a brown ale is a perfect pairing with this movie yeah that's a, that's a good pick okay so the changeling was my pick and now it's your turn to choose a movie for us to review so what are we going to be watching next time you know Maybe it's just the sense of isolation creeping in and crushing me slower and slower and denser <laughs> and denser and just feeling so far away. For some reason, I've been in like an old-timey mood. Yeah. And, um, you know, we watched this, which is kind of old-timey, and then we just recently watched Casablanca, which is just amazing. Yeah. So I think I want to go for something a little more old-timey. And as such, I haven't seen this in a long time, so hopefully it holds up. Pretty sure it will. It is... What I remember being my favorite Alfred Hitchcock movie. Oh. Rear Window. Really? Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's great. It has like a 99% on Rotten Tomatoes. I loved it all the times I've seen it. I just haven't seen it in a really long time. I've actually been hoping that you would pick that because I've never seen it. I'm really excited. Is it streaming anywhere that you know of or is that a rental? No, I checked. I was trying to pick movies that you know were streaming elsewhere, but... I couldn't really find anything that I was super into this week, and... But people can rent it? People can rent it, for sure. Cool. Yeah. Okay, so they can still watch it if they yeah. can watch it. Awesome. Okay. I apologize to any of you that were hoping to follow along and can't do it without renting, but, uh, you know. I also think it will bear well, and pair well, <laughs> with the isolation that people have been feeling and the sense of being home alone and that boredom, because it really plays on that. Yeah. I think it'll be kind of an interesting pairing. Awesome. I can't wait. That's a great pick. Cool. Nicely done. All right. So Rear Window, if you would like to watch it before we spoil it or rewatch it if you've already seen it, go ahead and rent it. Or you can see if it's available on Tubi or Vudu uh, free with ads. And as always, you can follow us on Instagram at Blood, Fear, and Beer Podcast. And if you get the opportunity, if you're able to rate review and subscribe to our show on apple podcasts it really helps us out we really appreciate it and of course as always you can email us 
movie or beer suggestions or if you'd like to tell us about one of your favorite ghost stories if we missed one or if you just want to if you have an opinion on one of the movies that we talked about uh, you can e- always email us at bloodfearandbeer at gmail.com and until next time keep it spooky cheers you guys Thank you.